0: Well guys, it is going to be back with you. Last year when I was here, it was 107 degrees. So I guess that was last week, it was 107 degrees, right? Yeah, it was hot. So tonight's beautiful. And uh, let me do a couple of things before I get started, because we're going to get started. We're going to move fast. And my goal is to uh, try to introduce you to, a, I think, a theme and a topic that doesn't get addressed a lot. I've actually not addressed it a lot in my own personal ministry. So I'm excited to bring it to you tonight on The Righteous Life of Christ But before I do that, I just need to let you know that I have other people from my clan here tonight I want to introduce. So you've met my wife, Julie. Julie, stand up. And then um, my oldest son, Tyler. Stand up. And then Lauren. Go ahead. She loves this part. Will is next. Our son. And then where's Allison? Oh, yeah. Kid. My my daughter, Allison, and then my other son, uh, Jonathan, are all here tonight. So um, we're excited to be here with you guys. Excited to partner with you in ministry Scott's right. I actually was discipled by Scott. So this is interesting to come back now and, and serve with him in this way. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. I also served with Blake Boys, your um, pastor of music. And so he and I served together down at the college around the same time, right? Yeah, which is pretty amazing. Uh, Tommy Barrington, the Barringtons actually were up at our church at North Creek for three years when he was going through dental school before he opened up his practice down here. We lost him to you guys. That was a bummer. Your guys gain, our pain and then, um, and then the Harveys as well, just other people I'm seeing around just going, man, the Lord has been so kind to build gospel partnerships, hasn't he? And uh, so I'm thankful to be here tonight. Let me ask you a question. Uh, these are really critical, life-changing questions. How many of you are Giants fans? Okay. Wow, that's it? Are you guys just not proud of that? How many of you are Dodger fans? You guys are on the border, aren't you? Like a border town. There's a lot of fighting here about Dodgers and Giants. Okay. And then um, let me ask you another question related, and I'll get back to the Dodgers and Giants in a second. How many of you are visiting for the very first time tonight? Tonight's first time you're visiting. All right, cool. How many of you guys belong to the family here at Grace Church? Raise your hand. All right, all right, helpful. Cool. Well, hey, listen, um, I am a visitor tonight, so let me get started by cracking open my my favorite moment in the last 24 hours was last night I was at AT AT&T Park watching the Giants game. Hunter Pence's first game back, Matt Cain's first game back, and uh, I'm a huge sports fan, okay? Here's the deal. I always love to catch a good ball game. Now, um... Gals, so if you don't like sports, or guys if you don't like sports, all this is going to be lost on you. So let me just kind of put it that way. I'm a huge Giants fan. I was at the game last night with Will, my son, and uh, and we saw what probably was this season's best defensive play. Like this is the defensive play of the year at the Giants game last night, and I was sitting there watching it, thinking this is spectacular. Here's what happened. Top of the sixth inning, Mets are at the at the plate. Uh, Curtis Granderson, the Mets, pretty good player just launched a rocket triple. He's standing on first base with one out. The next batter is is um, Tejada. He's up to the plate, and Kane's pitching to him. Throws him a pitch. Tejada hits like this kind of bloop line drive down the right field line. Hunter Pence is playing right field. He dashes across the right field line, goes into a slide to make the catch, and the place goes crazy. beautiful catch. What I didn't see was what was happening on third base. Curtis Granderson was tagging and running for home. Hunter Pence gets up turns around, throws a 200-foot laser beam, and nails uh, Granderson at home plate for a double play, a bang-bang play at home. And the place went berserk. Have you ever been in the, I, I, seen an extraordinary play live, real-time? And you're like, this is probably the best play I've ever seen. That was last night for me, 24 hours ago, with Hunter Pence. And the place just, I mean, the lid blew off at and ballpark. So sweet. Great moment. Great moment. It was the perfect catch and the perfect throw. And um, to follow up on that, if you're not a baseball fan, surely you are probably a soccer fan, and I've got two words for you. Carly Lloyd. Speaking of perfect plays, did you see that game? How you guys watched the World Cup game, the final? Yeah, with the women? How many of you did not watch it? Oh, man, you won't make that mistake again. So, yeah, in the final on Sunday, uh, she, this, this gal, Carly Lloyd, scored three goals in the first 16 minutes. I don't think anybody's ever done that before in a World Cup final. Her third goal was spectacular did you guys see it so she dribbles the ball outside of you know it's on the u.s side and she's playing japan she dribbles the ball through some defenders right across the midfield line and i've never seen anything like this she launches a shot from the midfield line just inside of it 57 yards on a perfect arc i mean the trajectory was perfect and the japanese gal the goalie was kind of stumbling back as she couldn't believe the ball got launched reached up and she couldn't quite get it the ball went over her fingertips perfect pace, and it hit the, bo- the, the post and dribbled into the goal. Did you guys see that? I mean, a spectacular 57-yard shot. That's me hitting a shot into the gazebo on the fly. I mean, nobody does that. And so it was, by many people, considered to be the best play in women's World Cup history. It was the perfect kick last Sunday, the perfect catch last night. And when you see that kind of thing happen as a sports fan, what do you do? Ah, man, you just celebrate that, don't you? I mean, everybody rose to the occasion, stood to their feet and applauded what they had just seen. I mean, Vancouver Stadium went into pandemonium. AT&T ballpark went into a frenzy. Why? Why do we go nuts when we see a perfect play? The reason why is because in that moment, we saw perfection and we loved what we saw. In that moment, we saw perfection, and we love it when we see that. Why? Because perfection, understandably, by default, is very difficult to attain, if not impossible. And when you're a part of it and you see perfection, you want to celebrate it. You want to make much of that play, as evidenced by the social media explosion on the back of Carly Lloyd's game on Sunday. On the back of the fact that their ratings blew the doors off the World Series ratings last year that my Giants played in. (laughs) Here's the deal human beings are made in the image of God. And as having been made in the image of God, we're created to love perfection. Now, when we, in Adam, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, back at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, we lost the ability to celebrate that perfection as seen in God himself. But in the, made in the image of God, that's what we're born to do. That's what we're created to do is to make much of the perfections of God. Friends tonight, I want us to consider the beauty of Jesus's righteous life. Or let me put it differently. I want us to celebrate the beauties of Jesus's perfect life. Because that's what you're made to do. You're made made in God's image. You're not evolved from a a pool of inanimate soup. You're made personally by a personal God, created in his image to celebrate the perfection that he is, most visibly seen in the person of Jesus Christ, most demonstrably seen for you in the biblical record of his earthly life and ministry. So I want us tonight to be able to consider the beauty, the beauty of Jesus's righteous life and when you see it, to celebrate it. Does that make sense? That's the goal. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ tonight, if you're not a, you know, you might say, well, I'm a Christian, everyone's a Christian. Well, but if you're not actively following the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's not your Lord and savior right now, then I want you to consider him tonight. And maybe instead of celebrating him, maybe you need to be convicted by him. Convicted by him to consider your life and to consider why am I not celebrating this perfect Christ? Celebrate other stuff, it's far from perfect. Why not celebrate and follow him? Either way, I want you all to consider him, okay? So we're gonna dive into the Bible a little bit here and uh, I'm gonna acknowledge right up front that who we see Jesus to be in the Bible is 100% God and 100% man. Both are true. All at the same time, he is perfect in the sum total of his divine attributes. Perfect in his Godhood. And we love that. We celebrate Christ for that, but we're not talking about that tonight. Tonight, we're talking about Jesus focusing on his humanity, his 100% human nature. And the fact that here in his human nature, we also see perfection, his sinfully righteous life. He's the only sinfully righteous person who's ever lived. You know that? If I ask you the question, who's the most perfect person you've ever met? It's a weird question, isn't it? You probably don't get asked that. You might throw out who? Who's the most perfect person you've met? You might throw out like a a visibly beautiful person, maybe. You might throw out, if you're really thinking about it, a person who has great character. If you're really kind of thinking about it, you might think about a really nice person historically. But guys, listen, here's the deal. The only perfectly righteous person who's ever lived and the Bible makes this point emphatically is Jesus Christ himself. So here's what I want us to consider tonight. I want us just to march through his life and to consider his perfection in his humanity at every step and then have some implication, application, and then we'll close, okay? That's the game plan. You ready? So number one, consider his birth as perfectly holy. His birth as perfectly holy. In Luke chapter one, verse 35, let's not forget about the fact that Jesus was born holy. Holy. It says in Luke 21:26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, and the virgin's name was Mary. You're probably familiar with that, right? This is Christmas in July. But this angel comes to Mary and says, greetings, O oh, favor, one. You're going to have the Holy Spirit uh, give you a child, and his name will be called the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Watch this here in verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. So at Jesus's birth, in his humanity, he's born holy. He's conceived in holiness. He's sinless. Even at conception, he's perfect from the very first moment he's conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He never was conceived in sin or in fallenness like all the rest of us. He's categorically different than us from the very beginning of his human existence. You got it? So that's something that we need to make sure that we understand. Even in verse 37, it says, nothing will be impossible with God. Because you ask yourself, well, how can a virgin conceive? a child. Well, nothing is impossible of God. The Holy Spirit made it happen. And that's how Jesus was born perfectly holy. Point number one. Point number two. This is where it gets fun. Because if you have, how many of you guys have kids? Kids, anybody? Okay. Check this out. Because you all were kids once. His childhood was perfectly obedient. Yeah. Just how about them apples? Turn to Luke chapter two, verse 51 for a second. That's where we see the text on this. Luke 2, 51 says this. And Jesus went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, was obedient to them. So much that it made Mary, his mom, ponder things in her heart. Like, man, I gotta think about who this child is. He's perfectly submissive to me. And to you, you're like, as a parent going like, man, that would be, I mean, that would be amazing if my child was perfectly obedient. In fact, Hebrews chapter five, verse eight says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So Jesus was learning obedience as he was growing up as a child. Now let's qualify that for a second because what that does not mean is how you and I learn obedience. You and I learn obedience by disobeying our parents, right? And then Pops comes over and says, hey, Kent, over here. You know what I mean? And you're busted because you disobeyed. And then comes the discipline and then comes the restoration. Then comes the obedience. But with Jesus, it couldn't have gone like that. His obedience was always marked by one stage of obedience to the next stage of obedience. So his obedience never came out of disobedience. His obedience always came out of obedience. Here's how. My son, who's a toddler at four, obeys, hopefully. And then when he grows older, he obeys in different ways, right? He matures in his obedience. He learns obedience as he gets older. A toddler doesn't obey like a, like a boy obeys, and obeyed, a boy doesn't obey like a teenager obeys. But you can grow in your obedience in that way. Jesus learned obedience as he grew through the things that he suffered. And so from toddler obedience to manhood obedience, his childhood was perfectly obedient. Luke 2, 51, Hebrews chapter five, verse eight. Now, let me just throw this out to you for your consideration. A toddler who never disobeys. Can you even imagine that? A boy who never disobeys. Check this out. A teenage boy who, ne- who never disobeys. A 20-somethings man. That's impossible to imagine, isn't it? A 20-somethings man who doesn't disobey. I mean, it really is a remarkable thing to stop and consider Jesus' perfect obedience at every step. So his birth was perfectly holy, his childhood was perfectly obedient. Third, his ministry was perfectly righteous. His ministry, by the time he finally got to be like, nah, 27, 28 years old, and he entered into his public ministry for three years, after his baptism, his ministry was perfectly righteous in several ways, okay? Number one, his actions were perfectly righteous. His actions were perfectly righteous. Um, How many of you guys have heard of John MacArthur? How many of you guys have not heard of John MacArthur? Yeah, okay, not many of you haven't. If you're visiting, maybe you haven't. But he wrote a book called One Perfect Life. In that book, One Perfect Life, he records over 200 different events in Jesus' life that occurred in the gospels. And in those events, each one of them, we see a demonstration of what it was like for Jesus to live in perfect obedience, perfect righteousness before God. Let me give you some examples of some passages. John chapter 4, verse 34 says this about Jesus's actions being perfectly righteous. And this is pretty cool stuff. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, verse 38 says this as another evidence, another passage, for I have come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus says, man, my will is to do what God has sent me to do. And that's it. Perfectly righteous in his actions. But not just his actions were perfectly righteous. His words were perfectly righteous. Guys, how many of you move through a day with perfect words? If you're tempted to give like a, yeah, man, I'm good with that. I'm probably going have to do a pretty good job. Let me just ask your wife the same question, right? Wives. How do your husbands do with perfect words in a given day? Super difficult, right? The Bible has tons to say about how our words are so deficient, so corrupted, because they're driven by sinful hearts. But understand this, Jesus' words were never defective. They were never sinful. Not one time. John 7, verse 16 says this. um, So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So he's speaking God's words. John chapter 12, verse 49 says this, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. In other words, Jesus never spoke one word that wasn't commanded from him for the father to speak. So his words were connected to God, the father himself. He never spoke on his own. He always spoke God's words. And as a result of that, Peter says, Lord, who are we gonna go to? You have the words of eternal life. When Jesus speaks, his words carry the weight of eternal life, John 6, 68. His actions were righteous, his words were righteous. And then number three, his heart was perfectly righteous. His heart was perfectly righteous. I mean, listen, if you were to know someone who did the right thing all the time, you'd be amazed, right? But if you were to know someone who spoke the right thing all the time, you'd be more amazed, I think. It's harder to control your tongue than it is to control your hands. But it's impossible, even for an hour, to control your heart. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, even if you're here as a visitor, you've never thought about your heart or about your mind, you know how rapidly your mind can wander away into something not right not even for an hour, can you control your heart? The Bible says you can't control your heart for a second. And so Jesus was just the opposite of you and me. I mean, stop and think about the fact that his heart was always in the right place. Can you imagine, if he was standing right here, he would never be defective in action, word, or heart. What does that look like? It looks like this, John 5, verse 30. This is so sweet, man. I seek not my own will, but I seek the will of God who sent me. Seeking, pursuing, chasing hard after. That was his heart. Matthew 26, 39 says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what your will is to be done, let it be done. So he, he pushed his will down so that he could have God's will be done in the uppermost evidence of case, um, ex- expression of things. Psalm 40, verses seven and eight. Jesus said, I think, behold, I have come in the scroll of your book. It's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is in my heart. Jesus delights to do God's will all the time. From his heart, from the inside out, he delights to do what God wants him to do. And even more than this, how about this? Isaiah fifty-two thirteen. My servant will deal wisely. Speaking of Christ, in other words, Jesus always did what, not just the right thing, he did the wise thing. And there's a lot of things in life that aren't necessarily sinful or good, they're just wise and unwise. And Jesus always did the wise thing, the prudent thing. If there's a bunch of good options, he always chose the best, striking in his wisdom. So Christ's obedience always came from his heart as a willing, joyous yielding of himself to his father's will and law. Never was it artificial and outward. Never once. He never was a fake for a second. He never put up a front for a minute. You never had to wonder what he was thinking in any given conversation you have with him. A remarkable life in actions, in words, and from the heart. From the manger at his birth, to Nazareth in his childhood, to his baptism at the beginning of his ministry, to his ministry in Galilee to the north, Judah to the south, his conflicts in Jerusalem with the religious leaders, all along the way to the anguish of the cross at the very end, never once did Jesus make the wrong call about anything. I don't think we could even begin to relate to how perfectly righteous a life could look. We'd have a hard time even relating to him. And you have an evidence of that by people's continual response to Jesus. Every time they interacted with him at any length, here was the response. They were in awe or they were astonished or depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man or falling at his feet and worshiping him. Why? Because you can't even imagine a righteous life like this until you see it for yourself. And when you see it, you want to celebrate it. At least that's how it goes in the Bible. Can I read to you some things that he never did? Just stop and think for a second about what he never did. Ready? Here we go. He never compromised his integrity. He never said an unwise word He never stared lustfully at a woman. He never lied. He never deceived. Never coveted anything from anyone, ever. Never got sinfully angry. Never gossiped behind anyone's back. Never stumbled in temptation. Was never lazy. Never spoke a harsh word. Was never for one moment proud. He never gave up. He never caved in. He never crumbled. He carried on. He pushed through. He persevered at all times. Here's what he was like if you could meet him. You would say this about him. He was always loving to me, always patient to me, always kind to me always joyful with me, always compassionate to me, always gracious to me, always a man of his word I could trust, always brilliant in his mind, always accurate in his speech, always spot on with his judgments, always gentle when I was broken, always zealous in good works, always meek in the expression of strength, but always strong. He always accomplished his purpose. He was always on mission. He always followed through. He always stood with me, and he always lived with the determination to do the right thing until the very end. You've never met a life like this, not even close. Are you getting what the Bible's saying here? He is so much different than you and me. The sum total of the perfections of Jesus's divine nature are staggering. Add to that the sum total of his human perfections. And it's almost like he's incomprehensible and you'd be right. You cannot dream this character up. Jesus is no myth. Do you want to know one of the reasons why you can know that that's true? Because you couldn't mythologize this. You can't imagine this. You can't make this up. If God didn't tell us, we could never think up this kind of person because none of us are like this. You can't imagine what you can't imagine. This has to be revealed to us from God. So here's the net effect of all of this. When you really stop and you walk out of here tonight and in your time alone, considering who you are is made in the image of God. And if you know Christ tonight being conformed in the image of God, when you get alone with God, you should be dumbfounded by the fact that you relate at all to this kind of life. If you don't know Christ, Christ, The Bible says that you're living an unrighteous life, radically different and opposed to his life. And the point of our lives, any of us, is that we would see Jesus Christ and say, he's perfect. He's infinitely gloriously perfect. And you want to rise and applaud. That's what you're created to do. When you see him, that's what you're created to do to respond to him to make much of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you mirror the very heart of God. John 3.35, John 5.20, other places say that the father loves the son. Why? Because he looks at the son and sees the sum total of perfections reflected in himself. And he loves what he sees. Guys, when you... Adore the manifold perfections of Jesus, the son of God. You're tapping into the very reason for your existence in this universe. You do not exist to magnify yourself. That's the message that the world is pumping at you every day. You exist. to make much of the one who created you and who sent his son to die to save you. You'll learn about that next week. So if you if I can dip into my sports analogy one more time, be a bigger fan of Christ. <laughs> so what kind of fan are you? This is the time for application reflection. I'm not joking. What kind of fan are you of Christ? I know fan is a little bit of a weird term, but go there with me because it ties to the sports analogy. You get it. If you, the more rabid of a fan you are, the more you celebrate when your team expresses itself gloriously you have a glorious expression of who God is in the person and work of his son. Do you celebrate him? Or listen, are you a fair weather fan? You know what I'm talking about? You you show up and you celebrate when it's easy for you. When someone gives you a free ticket, when someone gives you a free meal, you show up, fair weather. But when the going gets tough and you're called to suffer like he did, to learn obedience like he did, Not a fan. Friends, I'm a pastor at a church in the Bay Area. It's getting harder to be a casual fan. Can I suggest this and press you farther? It's not worth it. Why bother? Just check out. It's better checked out than halfway in. What kind of fan are you? Do you see, when you when you consider Christ, the thinking here is, is that you, you're drawn into the arena of the expression of his glories on display in his word. And when you see him, the more you see him, the more you're drawn to him. The more you follow him, the more fervent you become. The more you study him, the more you adore who you see. The more you love him, the more you give him your heart. I'm not kidding. Husbands, go home and ask your wives, what kind of fan do you think I am of Christ? Husbands, listen to your wives when they talk to you. And wives, serve your husbands by being honest. Wives, when you've said your piece, ask your husbands what kind of fan he thinks you are of Christ. And listen. Listen. Listen for the sake of your soul. Fathers with sons, we need to ask our sons, man, we need to ask our sons what we're doing with the Lord. Moms, get your daughters, pull them apart and go ask them how they are pursuing Christ. Grandparents, would you please take some time with their grandchildren the right way and just ask questions about what kind of fan you are? They are. Can I ask you some other questions? Are you weary in your Sunday worship of Christ? Do you walk in on Sunday weary of your worship of him? Then you haven't considered his righteous life enough. Are you sagging in your service to him? Then you haven't considered his service enough. Are you wimpy in your witness about him? I so appreciate our brother's testimony on that, right? He just, he's wearing shirts looking for opportunities to witness. Are you wimpy in your witness? Then consider... Jesus' mission, he came to seek and to save the one who is lost and go follow your master in that. Because the reality is this, friends, God's standard for each one of us is perfection. Did you know that? Jesus said to himself, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Otherwise, you cannot go to heaven. So people say all the time to me as a pastor, hey, I'm a Christian. I ask them how they know. And they say, well, I'm, I'm, I do the right things. How do you know that you're gonna go to heaven someday? Well, you know, I know, but my good works are gonna outweigh my bad. You hear that, don't you? My good works, will outweigh my bad? The Bible says in James chapter one, that whoever um, keeps the whole law, but sins in one part of it is guilty of breaking all of the law. So perfection means that you never fail in one point, And that's God's standard to let people into his heaven. If you're hoping to get to heaven on the back of your own good works, friend, you are lost. And the only solution you have is, this, is the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect life can be yours. It can be credited to your account as you trust in him and follow him as your Lord and savior. His perfect life can be credited to you So that when you die and you stand before the father someday and he says, why shall I let you into my heaven? You can say, you can say, because I've trusted in the only life that was perfectly lived and his righteousness is mine by faith in him. And God, the father will say, come on in. But if you try to say things like, no, I trusted in myself, my own good deeds against my bad deeds, that won't work. The Bible tells us that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died a perfect death on your behalf. Listen, Jesus Christ was perfect, not for three hours at a baseball game, not for three seconds kicking a perfect shot, but for 30 years in every aspect of life, not a single sinful thought, never an evil deed, never a wicked word, perfect. This is the re- one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons why you love him so much, if you know him tonight. You're hardwired to love perfection when you see it. You can see perfection right here. His name is Christ. See him and celebrate him with your life. Now, and when you see him at the end of the age, you'll celebrate him forever. There will be a day in heaven where all of the saved will be gathered together around Christ. And when we all lay our eyes on the perfect lamb of God, the the applause and the celebration and the partying that will happen then will outstrip anything you ever see in your life put together. That will be quite a display of not just perfection, but of our pure, perfectly beautiful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, here's the deal. <laughs> I I exist as a pastor to point people to Christ. So does Scott. If you want to talk about this, man, there's nothing more i to talk about with you. If you have questions about this, then this topic. And I, I would just encourage you to come find us afterwards. I'm going to close in prayer. Scott, I think you're going to have some thoughts for us. So, Please come find me. Please come find Scott, man. There's nothing more important in your life than getting this thing right, okay? So I just wanna invite you to come and find us afterwards. We'd be delighted to talk to you about the delight of our life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me pray for you and ask for God's help. Thanks so much for having me. We'll close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time. Truly, we are so blessed to be in Christ for those of us who know you. Lord, to be able to have the sum total of the perfections of Jesus, all of his righteousness credited to our account. That is an amazing truth. It's an amazing gospel reality. God, we're so grateful for the good news that Jesus's righteous life can be credited to us and we can be freed from our sin and our slavery to it. So Lord, we just celebrate Christ tonight for those of us who know you. Father, I pray for those who don't know you here tonight that that they would be able to just begin to see who Jesus is and beginning to see who he is might, might begin to have an understanding of who they are by contrast. And God, I pray that your spirit would be drawing men to yourself, drawing women to yourself, drawing children to yourself who don't know you yet so that together we can celebrate this perfectly righteous life lived by Jesus Christ commend all these folks to you. God, don't know them, but I love them in Christ and pray that you would strengthen them in this word tonight. I ask all these things in your son's name and for his sake. Amen.